morning and hello to all of you that are watching online as well. Thank you for spending part of your Sunday morning with us, worshipping together. We had a great weekend last weekend when Pastor Corey was speaking here in our Deerfoot campus, thinking about what it means to imitate Jesus. And then as we prayed for the Holy Spirit to move in our lives, it was a special moment. If you weren't able to be here, I'd love to encourage you to take the time to go back and view that and be part of what God was doing, touching and changing lives. Today in our walk through the book of Acts, our unexpected acts, we come across another fairly fascinating story, at least I think it is. And I've called it a change of menu, which is an odd title, because surely there are more important things to be thinking about in church than menus and what you're going to eat. However, once I started with this, I kind of spent the entire week mostly thinking about food, what I could get away with eating while I was talking, because you get cameras everywhere and will it all spray out? Can I sort of muffle my voice and I gave up. I decided I wouldn't. I wouldn't bring food up here. But for your information, this time only, there are empanadas for sale after the service this morning. And I know they're good because I was here last night and had an awful lot of them. They're a really good deal. You'll want to get some from Sterling in the cafe. But back to what I'm supposed to be doing. Lots of families have traditions. How we celebrate Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthdays or anniversaries. And often those transitions involve food. It's just who we are. Coming from Europe where Thanksgiving isn't really celebrated, Jill and I used to always wonder, what are you supposed to do at Thanksgiving? What should you eat? Where we grew up, turkey is Christmas food. Ham, nobody needs to be eating at any time of the year. Why do you do that? (laughs) And so what to do? It was a big decision for us. Some of you might know that our daughter and her son-in-law, Ailey and Max, they moved here this past Friday. They've moved here for good, which is exciting for us, and we're excited. And I think the plan for Christmas this year is actually all our kids and our grandchildren are all going to be here, and we can celebrate together. It doesn't happen often. But there's a bunch of Christmas traditions in our home that always seem to come back every year. Christmas Day breakfast, followed by everybody sitting around the tree. I'm forced to get the parcels out one at a time. One, read what it says on the top. It has to be read out clearly. It has to be opened before the next thing comes along. Two Callum from mum and dad, two Jillian from Santa, two Clover from John. And heaven forbid anybody tries to change anything. Nobody's having it. And when they're here for the holidays, there's always this conversation about what to eat, the Christmas menu. Parents like to get a little bit experimental, mostly because we watch far too many cooking shows. Kids are not having it at all. Same thing every year. Turkey with bacon, roast vegetables, potatoes, gravy, cranberries, all this sort of thing. It has to be the same thing. And then there's sticky toffee pudding and this grape pudding that's got something to do with, well, it's nothing really to do with grapes. They're there. If you want to know the secret, I'll maybe give you the recipe and offer you a free cooking class. But it's how it goes. It's what we do. Every single time, nothing ever changes. The menu's fixed, traditions reign supreme. No goose, no ham, no Chinese food, no fruitcake, thank God. No variations, we eat what we eat. It's just a good doorstop, Henry, let it be all. (laughs) And this is the story we're going to read today about traditions, especially traditions about food being challenged and a menu being changed, quite surprisingly in Acts chapter 11. Let me read the whole thing to you and then we'll take our time to go through it. Acts 11 verse one. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. 
There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord. Nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell in them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God saying, then God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. This is actually the abbreviated version of a story that's first recounted in the previous chapter. Chapter 10 is like the live action version. Chapter 11 is Peter's summaries, summarizing what has happened because people are asking him some questions. And you've got to think there's real significance to this story if the author of the book of Acts, Luke, basically has the same story and you flip the page and he tells the whole thing all over again, twice in such close proximity. Something big is going on here. Something that was troubling and concerning to these first followers of Jesus. And I think we need to know why and how and what. In fact, there's been a move of the Holy Spirit, a creative move of the Holy Spirit, and not everybody understands what's going on just yet. It's confusing. Expectations are being challenged. Traditions are being set aside. And it leads to questions. It leads to criticism. I mean, who knew anybody would ever be critical in church? <laughs> but the situation was complex enough and certainly volatile enough that this felt like a significant change that had to be worked out. In fact, by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, there's this big meeting that's called of all the elders and all the apostles in Jerusalem, and they're trying to get everybody on the same page once and for all. But for now, we're sticking with the events of chapter 11. Let me read the first couple of verses again to set the scene. Now, the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? All this talk of uncircumcision really ah, puts people off, I think, especially the guys. Everybody's getting really nervous here. But in the context, forget it, let it go. In the context, it's a euphemism for Jewish people. Because in reality at this time, almost everybody who was a follower of Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, his 12 disciples were Jewish, and everybody that they've been talking to since lived in Israel, essentially, they were all Jewish. They were kind of like a subset. You have your Pharisees and your Sadducees and your Essenes and your Christians or Nazarenes or followers of the way. They had all sorts of names. That's who they were. They were just part of a bigger crowd of people. And so when Peter 
one of them, a significant leader, a significant apostle, one of the very first followers of Jesus, has been hanging out with Gentiles, people who are not in the in crowd. In fact, the people who killed Jesus. Well, what's this all about? What's going on here? There are questions to be asked, serious questions. Why did you go to this guy's home? And why did you go inside his house and then have dinner with him? The guy that Peter visited was a Roman soldier. Romans, the guys who killed Jesus. What are you thinking, Peter? Do you not realize the danger that we're all in here? Maybe they were scared of the Romans. Maybe they were just worried about the Jewish authorities. After all, they'd also stoned to death a man called Stephen who was talking about Jesus far too much for everybody else's liking, and he died. Maybe everybody's just terrified. Like, let's not make a big deal here and stay quiet for a little time. Or perhaps the issue was about boundary markers, lines in the sand that tell us who's in and who's out. Kind of like we wear different jerseys when you go to a game and you kind of figure out which team you support. Or right now with an election coming up, what lawn sign you've got. Is it blue or is it orange? Are you in or in you out? That's how we look at things. And they're really asking, what are you doing, Peter? Are you suggesting that just anybody can follow Jesus? Don't they need to be Jewish first? Everybody else is Jewish. What about these people? Can you really follow Jesus and cheer for the Leafs? I'm not so sure, Peter. Like, what are you doing? Do you have to vote conservative to follow Jesus? These are the sorts of things they're asking. And who knows? But there are answers that are needed. And so in verse 4, Peter began to explain to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. Peter wants to take them carefully on the journey that he's been on, literally, to understanding. He begins by where he was staying, in Joppa. It's a seaside town just south of Tel Aviv. They call it, well, in in English it would be called Jaffa these days. Same place, you can go see it. He was staying with a guy called Simon. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verse 43, you read about this and it says, Meanwhile, Peter, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Simon worked with leather, which would have made him to be considered ritually unclean in their culture by observant Jewish people. It seems as though something's already changing for Peter, as though he's crossing over some lines or his mind is opening up to some new thinking because he's obviously got it a little different about who's in and who's out. He's staying in this guy's Airbnb and he's not clean enough for the very pure. He's crossed a line. And when Peter's there, he has this vision. In fact, in chapter 10 that tells more of the story, Peter says then that he's actually been up on the roof for some time praying and his mind's wandering and he's getting hungry and then he has this vision. Kind of like sometimes happens in church, your mind's wandering, you start dozing off, maybe thinking about food because I've started talking about the food, you want the empanada, hurry up man, get to the end of the story, we can get the snacks. Anyway, pressing on, Peter sees all these animals coming down in this sheet, things that he would not normally hunt or even eat. 
Jewish people had, and many still have, very strict kosher rules about the type of things they can eat. They divided things into clean and unclean, fairly straightforward if you know what the rules are. And everything in this sheet that he saw coming down from the sky was unclean. All of it was off the menu for Peter. He never had, and he never planned to ever try eating any of these things. Nothing was going to convince him otherwise. And that can be hard for us to grasp, I think. I mean, if I had a dream about bacon or lobster, I don't think I'd be reacting like Peter did and getting angry about it. I'd be getting a frying pan out and see what I could do. Get my plate, bring it on. Thank you, Jesus, for my dream about bacon. But Peter had been raised to avoid foods like that. No BLTs for him. And he objects to the instruction that God gives to him. And God is telling him the categories have changed. If God says it's okay, it's okay. It happens three times. Lots of things happened three times to Peter. He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus gently and lovingly restored him three times as he asked him those questions. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me, Peter? And now a vision with a message, it happens three times. You got to think Peter's a little slow in the uptake, the way things generally go here. But even he's beginning to get the message. But before he can get on with frying his bacon, visitors show up. Verse 11, here's what happens. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers accompanied me and we entered the man's house. The guys came from a town called Caesarea. Its full name is Caesarea Maritima. It's a north, another coastal town north of Tel Aviv this time, not too far away. King Herod, the bad guy in the Bible, King Herod spent a lot of money upgrading and getting this place looking good. It was this port in a sense for Jerusalem. He had aqueducts there. He had a working sewage system. He had a theater, a hippodrome for chariot racing, a big marketplace. It served as the Roman headquarters for their administration in ancient Palestine. It was also the Roman military base, the headquarters there. And you can still see lots of this stuff today. King Herod had, I think, probably the world's first infinity pool and you can actually see it where his little swimming pool goes right out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's very cool. And these guys, they wanted Peter to come with them to meet their boss. And from chapter 10, we know who their guy's name is. Chapter 10, verse 1 says in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. Cornelius is a big deal. A Roman centurion, one of six centurions who commanded the Italian cohort of around 600 men. He was a man of considerable authority and standing in his culture and time. And it's no wonder these believers, followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, are asking questions. First of all, you're renting rooms from a guy who's kind of an outsider. He's working with leather. He's unclean. And now you're going to this Gentile's house, a Roman soldier, a commanding officer, the people who murdered Jesus. You're going there and going into his house like, what? And Peter keeps explaining. He says, well, the Holy Spirit told me to go. I can imagine eyes rolling because mine do sometimes when people say things like that to me. I hear silly stories. People say, guys saying, oh, the Holy Spirit told me to marry you. And the girl's looking at him going, ah, well, he never told me. Take a hike. <laughs> but people do it often. We invoke the divine in order to justify our actions. God told me, how am I supposed to respond to you now? That's the end of a conversation. And when people say that to me, and I hear lots of the doing, my eyes honestly do roll around in my head. Well, there's the conversation over. Dubious or not, this is what Peter's telling them. But it does have a ring of truth. 
I mean, why on earth would he be going to a centurion's house? There couldn't have been a more dangerous place for him to have chosen to go to meet someone. And I can only imagine the questions that Peter had in his own mind. Is this what the vision about the food is all about? That if God says it's okay, it's okay? Does that saying apply to people as well? If God says they're okay, then they're okay? Not only has Peter had this strange vision, he's heard clearly from God and so off he goes with these guys. And when they arrive at the centurion's house, inside they go. Yet another line has been crossed by Peter. And Cornelius begins to explain why he sent for him. Because he'd had a vision too. We read about it in verse 13. He told us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. It's as though God is really preparing everything for Peter. There's been a vision, there's been a command, and when he gets there, there's somebody who's eager and ready to meet him and listen to him and have a conversation with him. God has given both of these men a vision, and now he's brought them together to talk. And Peter begins to tell Cornelius about Jesus. The content of what he said is not recorded for us in chapter 11 in the summary, but it is all there in chapter 10. I want to read just a little bit about it, of what Peter was saying to him as he told Cornelius the story of Jesus. He said this, You know the message he, God that is, sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message was spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It's a great summary of the story of Jesus, a great summary of what good news is. Jesus is appointed and anointed by God. Jesus is filled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught and healed. Jesus set people free from the things that were controlling them. Jesus was cursed and was crucified. Jesus was vindicated when God raised him from the dead in the third day. Jesus resurrected, met with his followers who are witnesses to all that happened. Jesus raised a new life at fish and chips in the beach with his pals. Jesus who changes lives. Jesus who says that he makes everything new. And poor Peter, he doesn't even get to finish his sermon. And I feel for a guy at this point in time because verse 15, all of a sudden when he's just getting going, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell in them just as it had upon us at the beginning. He couldn't get finished. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Peter's just getting going and the Holy Spirit shows up in power. And I love how he explains it. I love how he brings the experience of these people, these Gentiles, these Roman soldiers, and he matches it up. He makes the connection between what happened to them and what happened on the day of Pentecost, the very first time the Holy Spirit fell upon the followers of Jesus. In fact, it's significant how Peter explains it. He's comparing what happened in this house 
in Caesarea to what happened in that upper room in Jerusalem when there were 120 people there and the tongues of fire came and the rushing wind and everybody began speaking in all sorts of languages. He compares it to that. He's not comparing it just to when they all go outside and start preaching and lots of people say yes. He's comparing it to the very first time, the very beginning, because he wants the people in Jerusalem to understand and he wants us to understand there are no second-class followers of Jesus. Everybody stands on level ground because Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. Even more, Peter sees in the experience of these Gentile people, he sees the fulfillment of the saying of Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1 verse 5 when Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And if these Gentiles have been baptized with the same Holy Spirit, they're definitely in. They're in the in crowd. God was already preparing the way for Peter. He'd had his vision. He had the command, the instructions. He met with a guy who was instantly ready to say yes for Jesus. And look what happens next. Well, chapter 10 gives us a couple more details. Peter says, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they invited him to stay for several days. It's a significant question. Can anyone withhold the water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The answer is obviously no. The people who have said yes to Jesus who were baptized with the Holy Spirit are now going to be baptized with water. Next weekend for us is going to be a baptism weekend at all campuses and congregations of FAC. It's going to be a big celebration. And if you've said yes to Jesus and not yet been baptized, what are you waiting for? Really, what are you waiting for? These people in Cornelius's house, they didn't need to know anymore. They didn't need somebody to give them a whole lot of teaching. They didn't need to wait till they were older. They didn't need to get their act together somehow. They simply needed Jesus and they're baptized right away. And if you've not been baptized, we would love to baptize you next weekend. It's the tangible, physical, visible testimony of what's happened on the inside of God changing us. Going under the water is this symbolic act of dying in a sense, dying to an old way of life, dying like Jesus died and coming out of the water, raised in a sense to new life because the life of Jesus is within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it's this beautiful picture of every reality that's taken place in our hearts. There's no more going back as we learn to live live with Jesus, baptized with water, baptized with the Holy Spirit is what was normative for these people. If you want to know more, you can text the number on the screen if you want to find out about baptism. If you're watching online, ask one of your hosts right now for some information. We'll make sure you're ready and you know what you need to do to be part of what we can take part in next weekend. But if Peter's first question is about baptism, his second question it's just as important. We read this one in chapter 11. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? It's unanswerable, really. We shouldn't hinder God. We cannot hinder God. God is doing something new because Jesus is for everyone. When we began reading chapter 11, Peter 
is have, facing tough questions about what he was doing and who he's hanging out with and what he's having for dinner because he's with these people that are not Jewish. He's crossed some lines. It looks as though he's gone rogue. It looks as though he's crossed one line far too many. It looks as though he's abandoned all of the tradition of their faith, as though he's abandoned what they understood God's plan and purposes for them were. He just seems to have walked right through all of it and left it behind. One author, Willie James Jennings, puts it like this. This is an impossible assignment for Peter because he must explain the inexplicable. He must suture together a known faithfulness with an unknown faithfulness and bring together obedience to the ancient word and spirit with obedience to the spirit and the present word. This is something very new. And Peter a little slow in the uptake sometimes, remember all the threes? Peter has learned something. He's learned that what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And it's not just about the menu and what you can have for lunch. It's about people too. Because he's also learned not to make a distinction between them and us. There are no them and us. There are no second class followers of Jesus. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came, there were Jewish people who were living in Jerusalem gathered there. And from the Jewish diaspora around the Mediterranean region, there were lots of visitors there and there was no distinction. They all came together as one as the followers of Jesus. And as we've been reading through the book of Acts with all of these unexpected acts, we see Samaritans beginning to follow Jesus. And then an Ethiopian begins to follow Jesus. And then Saul is on his way to Damascus and Syria to murder a bunch of people. He begins to follow Jesus. And now these Romans are following Jesus. God makes no distinctions because Jesus is for everyone. In fact, later on, the apostle Paul would write, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made us both into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And maybe in our world of nationalism or racism or colonialism, of sexism, of ableism, of divisive political partisanship, we need to be reminded of this. Every person is invaluable and irreplaceable in the eyes of God because Jesus is for everyone. And if you hear me say nothing else today, hear this. Every person you will ever meet is invaluable and irreplaceable in the eyes of God. Because Jesus is for everyone. This whole story is about living in the new world that God is bringing into being after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The scriptures tell us he's the first but not the last. It's a story, if you like, about new creation. And to make the point here in this 
book of Acts. Luke is using language from the book of Genesis. It reminds us about it. Do you remember the story of the Spirit of God hovering over the water in creation? And now the Spirit of God is working in the lives of people, recreating a brand new world. He's using words that the book of Genesis used. Peter says, remember how the Holy Spirit fell on us at the beginning or in the beginning? The exact same way the Bible begins, in the beginning. This is a story about God making new things because Jesus said he's making everything new, an unexpected surprise. And here's what's very unexpected in this story. This new creation, this new thing that God is doing, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. God is taking people down a road they would not have chosen to travel. They did not expect to travel. For Peter and Joppa, for these other believers in Jerusalem, this new creation feels like an upheaval. Everything is changing. Nothing is settled. We don't know what to do. Why? Because Jesus is for everyone. And maybe that is us. Maybe it's you. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what is God doing in our time and place right now? What is God up to? What is the new thing that he's doing right now? Who is he asking me to tell? Where could I take the good news of Jesus? Here's how the story wraps up. When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Professor F.F. F. Bruce at the University of Manchester once said of this, their criticism ceased and the worship began. I love that. Their criticism ceased and their worship began. There was no answer to Peter's questions. Just praise and worship. But I want you to notice the phrase there, God gives the repentance that leads to life. I think we need to figure out that repentance, sometimes we misconceive this. Repentance is not some big heroic first step that I make towards Jesus to show him I'm trying my best. It's not even simply feeling sorry for my sins. Repentance is the divine gift of being able to turn towards God in truth. That means I need to turn towards and face up to the truth in my own life. And that's beyond my own ability. Like Cornelius, I can't really repent or turn around on my own. God does it for me. In Jesus, God turns towards you. He turns towards me and faces us in his grace and enables us to respond, to turn towards him. Repentance is an act of God's grace. Surprisingly, in this story, Cornelius is very passive. He doesn't say or do very much. It's as though he's being swept along, carried along by the tide of events that he's not able to resist or do anything about. He doesn't initiate it, nor can he really stop it either. This is the way it is with repentance. It's more than a decision we make or some good deed that we offer to God. Repentance is this joyful human response to God turning his face straight towards you and calling your name and bringing you home. And you turn towards him as you respond because Jesus is for everyone. Have you received God's gift of repentance? Have you ever responded to God when he turns towards you by turning to him? If you haven't, I'd love to pray for you in a minute or two that you would do just that. I started out thinking about a menu 
And God certainly changed the menu for Peter and not just for lunch and his diet. He changed what Peter thought about who's in and who's out. It turns out in his day, both Jews and Gentiles, they're all on God's menu, if you like. Everybody's accepted. They're all invited to respond to Jesus. And what about us? Who is it you think has gone too far? They could never follow Jesus. Or perhaps hurt you so badly. You could never really pray for them because they could never be changed. Who is it that fits into some category you think, I'm having nothing to do with this? Do you realize we're all on God's menu? We're all accepted because Jesus is for everyone. Who will you tell? Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you that as we read the story of a strange encounter, that the same gift you give to Cornelius you give to us, you give us this gift of repentance. Thank you that even right now you're turning your face full on towards us and you call us by name. And Lord, for some of us, we do need to repent and turn around. And so thank you for giving us the gift to look you in the face and say, I'm here and I'm turning to you. I need your forgiveness. I need everything that happened to Cornelius to happen to me. I want Jesus in my life to follow him. And Lord, I want to pray for people that will choose to be baptized next weekend, to make very visible the decision that's going on quietly in their heart, maybe even right now, that we would do what these people did and be baptized with water, to make visible to the whole world what you're doing in our hearts, that you're making everything new. And we also want to pray for the situations and people we find it hard to talk to. It's hard to tell people about Jesus sometimes. And there's some people we just don't like talking to. And if we're real honest, there's some people we've never put on the guest list and we never would if it was up to us. But Jesus is for everyone. And so we pray that as we enter our week, we'd learn to live and to love like that as we share the amazing story of Jesus making us brand new. And so we pray in his name today and say thank you.